real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns. and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Welcome back, everybody. Nathan Romas with you again. Uh, lately in the news, there's been quite a bit of stuff on national security. And we see a lot of uh, local news here in Edmonton, but uh, kind of across the world on things like hate crimes and extremism. So for that, I've got a subject matter expert on the program here to discuss these topics. We have Mubin Sheikh with us. Mubin is a former undercover human source for the Canadian Security Intelligence Service and agent with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Integrated National Security Enforcement Team. Super long name. Uh, here, uh, he worked infiltration operations, including the Toronto 18 terrorist cell. Movement was then involved with infiltrating ISIS social media networks from 2012 to 2018. He is a subject matter expert for the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff's Strategic Multilayer Assessment Team and participated in supporting anti-ISIS activities. Mubin has spoken to UN Security Council, uh, or sorry, the UN Security Council, US Senate on Homeland Security, and the Canadian Standing Committee on Public Safety and National Security, as well as several other organizations. He has a uh, Master's of Policing, Intelligence, and Counterterrorism, and is currently a professor in the School of Public Safety at Seneca College and a counter-extremism specialist for the renowned NGO Parents for Peace. So quite an impressive background. Welcome, uh, Mubin. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, we were talking a little bit before we got started here, but um, we got to talk about you <laughs> to start off. So yeah. um, you got quite the career accomplishments and, and I mean, you're talking to some pretty high level people. Um, if you could take us right back to the beginning and, and tell us where you're from and, and about your... Uh, uh, childhood and growing up. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you said, uh, you want to talk about me and, uh, so, you know, careful what you wish for. <laughs> um, you know, the, um, I'm, I'm born and raised in Toronto, Canada. Um, uh, my parents are Indian background. Um, my grandfather was actually a police officer in India. Uh, working in the criminal uh, intelligence bureau. Um, actually went undercover as a, a Hindu monk, basically a Hindu pundit, because the local, uh, you know, the local pundit, uh, they, he had orchestrated a murder of a family. And so um, he basically worshipped as if though he were a Hindu priest, just so that he could get this confession from, uh, from the, the guy who orchestrated these murders. So it, it kind of runs in my family that... Um, this sort of stuff came about. My grandfather sent my father to the UK to study in the 50s. So he studied electronics um, in uh, St. Albans, in uh, just outside of London. And, and um, there was a job fair. Bell Canada was offering, um, you know, positions. And, and, and this is a true story. He actually walked in and the person who was um, holding the session thought he was the IT guy. And because he fixed the, so he ended up fixing this, the projection screen that they were using at the time and then sat down and then to, you know, the facilitator's surprise, he was actually there for a job interview. So, 
so he got the job. He settled. He came over to Canada. They, you know, and this is again, you know, early seventies, mid seventies. There's a lot of Indo-Pakistani migration at this time. In the fifties and sixties, it really went to the UK primarily. Um, of course, because of you know colonial histories, and that's where the labor demands were. Um, so my dad came here, um, set up shop with Bell Canada, uh, worked for Bell Canada. You know, retired after I think it was forty something years. Can't remember. Um, we get an employee discount, you know, for our internet, TV, and all that, all legit. So I got no problem saying it. Uh, but just, I mean, this is, uh, you know, he, he was, um, you know, an Indian kid, really, who was sent to Britain, got a little bit of exposure to the West, came here, set up shop, and I was born here. Now, also one of the things that happened with these Indo-Pak communities is they tend to replicate a lot of the cultural programming and, and events that they have and, and where their kids are basically raised in. Um, and, and so in my context, it was going to Quran school. Like, uh, so very, you know, if you can imagine the stereotypical madrasa, you know, in Pakistan, Afghanistan, it's, you know, kids sitting on the floor, rocking back and forth at wooden benches, reciting the Quran, but not understanding what they were reading. Mm. And any, you know, the understanding of it was, of course, left to the, the, the cleric and the teacher who was there. So, so in the evening time after school, we would do two hours a day of this Quran school. Of course, in the daytime, I went to the public school system. Um, and what I saw was a complete, you know, opposite uh, perspective. One was a caring, nurturing environment in which, you know, there was diversity, there was, um, you know, I had fond memories of my teachers, but juxtapose that with the Quranic school I was going to, it was an abusive environment. You were beaten, slapped, punched, kicked, put into stress positions. It, it kind of introduced the idea that religion is something violent mm. in my mind. Mm -hmm. And so I'm carrying this black and white, you know, one side, the other side. And this is laying the foundation for an identity crisis that's going to hit me in high school. So what happens is, when I got to high school, I actually joined the Army Cadets. All right, I actually joined the Army Cadets, and believe it or not, I used to be a very introverted, you know, kid. Um, you know, right up to about grade seven and maybe even eight. Uh, you know, I had the brill cream hair when I had hair, um, and you know, just went home. Went, you know, I would live right down the street from the school. Didn't socialize with anyone, whatever. The last day of grade eight is when the air cadets basically came in and gave a presentation. Um, and so I checked them out and then didn't follow up with them, went to high school. Uh, there was a kid in my class. He happened to be in the army cadets. So he was like, join the army cadets. So I ended up joining the army cadets. And why I mentioned that is that that is another peer group and value system that's starting to impact on me. Mm -hmm. So now I have, I have this religious background, cultural upbringing, join the army cadets. In high school, I wasn't bullied, I wasn't picked on, I wasn't a victim of racism. I lived a pretty cliche high school life. Like, we were the cool kids of school, you know? And my friends, you know, they were in a, a metal band, and they were, we were not even old enough to drink, but they were winning all the Battle of the Bands at the local bars, like, in Toronto, downtown Toronto. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a great experience, and so... Drawing from that, I decided to have a house party at my own house while my parents were out of town. 
So my father being, of course, you know, the responsible adult had told his brother, his oldest brother, the uncle, uh, to check on the house while he was gone. So in the middle of this house party, my uncle burst through the door. I mean, like SWAT team, you know, emergency tactics, <laughs> like, and, and my life came crashing down before my very eyes. I was humiliated. I was guilt tripped. I had defiled the home. I had dishonored the family. And so I thought to myself, the only way I'm going to salvage this is for me to quote unquote, get religious. And so what that meant was to immerse myself in the uh, practice of the religion. So I would join a group called the Tablig Jamaat. Now the Tablig Jamaat is an apolitical group. They are not extremists at all. They are fundamentalists. They do have a really old world view. And that's largely because the main adherents come from Indian, Pakistani, and Bangladeshi um, backgrounds. And it's still very patriarchal, misogynist, you know, it's old world mentality. Um, and they, they do this thing. You spend two months in India and two months in Pakistan and you stay in the mosques. Um, you, you know, you just go around the localities and you basically encourage other Muslims to be more practicing. All right. Mm. Not extreme. It's just, you know what? You pray, you fast. This is what God wants of you. All good. Like a missionary. But it just so happened. Yeah. Like, like a missionary, but not trying to convert other people, but mm. basically going to our own communities and mm. trying to get them to be more practicing. Okay. So, um, so it just so happened that in Pakistan, this is now July, 1995. It just so happened that they sent our group to a city called Kuwaita. Kuwaita sits on the border. It's on the border region of the federally administered tribal areas. And because the Tablighis, they don't involve themselves in politics. They're able to operate wherever these political groups are operating because they, they don't talk about politics like at all. It's prohibited. So no, you know, nobody considers them to be a threat because they don't talk politics. So it just so happened in that area was a Taliban stronghold. Mm. And in my travel around the locality, I chanced upon a group of them and became enamored by them, right? This Muslim kid, you know, with a little bit of exposure to the military, looking for this identity, has to be this tough identity. I saw, I found it in them. And so I became enamored by them, as I said. And when I returned back two months later, and I turned 20, I saw on the news that the Taliban had come to power in Afghanistan. And I took that as a validation of their worldview, mm -hmm. that they did what they said that they were going to do. Now, it was surreal for me this past August um, 2021, actually. 2022, actually, yeah. This year is when the Taliban came came back into power. It's not even 2.0. It's the same Taliban, actually. The same leaders who were imprisoned. You know, so um, so I, I then left the Tablik Jamaat and went further down the radicalization rabbit hole. More political conflicts were happening at the time. The Russian invasion of Chechnya in 1995-96 of Grozny. Um, generated the first real, uh, you know, um, jihadi propaganda. I saw my first beheading video in 1996. It was of a Russian soldier who had been ambushed in an attack um, by these, you know, neo-Salafi jihadi 
um, fighters in the Caucasus there, Dagestan and so on. And this is 90, and this is in 96. 96. Before, you know, personal computing was like this massive thing. And, That's and right. Videos on YouTube. Yeah. Wow. I'm in that generation that has lived across that, right? When there were mm-hmm. no, there was no internet, there was no even personal computers. Um, and the, just the things that you needed to do back then to get that information. And mind you, this stuff was being sold openly. Um, you know, I mean, I think I picked it up in Mecca probably in 1996, 97. Um, but then in 98, I got married. Now this is kind of weird because now, okay. So the high school that I went to, there was this Polish girl that I uh, was friends with. And uh, the year after I was done high school is when I went away to India and Pakistan and got super religious. That last year was the high school, it was the, the house party. And she's, and when I came back, I still had some friends who were doing their last year. So they saw me all hyper-religious and they became, so this, this girl who was previously not interested in me became interested in me suddenly. Mm. And it turned out like she had this whole fascination with the East and was reading like books on Hindu philosophy. And, and so I, I kind of proposed to her. I said, you know, if your ideology was different, I would propose marriage to you. And that was a weird way to do it. But believe it or not, she, she said, okay, mm. you know? And so, Hey, you know what? Christmas is our wedding anniversary. It's going to be 24 years wow. this Christmas. So, yeah, so we, we did something right. Yeah. Um, so in 98, I got married to her. And uh, that calmed me down a little bit. But at the same time, what else happened in 98? A guy named Osama bin Laden came out with his fatwa mm. against the Jews and crusaders in the world. And so, so I was still engaging in that space. Um, but it's the 9-11 attacks that made me really reconsider everything. I saw what I saw that day and just, you know, watching all the news coverage and, and everything just made me realize that, wait a second, I get the fighting, the enemy and, you know, this and that, but like flying planes into buildings, like when, when did that become okay? So I, I realized I had a crisis, you know, and I thought to myself, you know, I don't know Arabic. I haven't studied the Quran really properly. I'm going to go and do that. I'm going to go to the the Middle East. I'm going to go to Syria. And why Syria? So, you know, I thought about going to Saudi Arabia, but I was like 25 by this time. And the Saudis, they don't like uh, people that old because that's too old, quote unquote. You can't, you know, indoctrinate somebody at that Mm, age, I guess. Um, I didn't go to Egypt because it was too expensive at the time. And it just so happened that there were some construction workers at the mosque uh, two of whom lived in, were from Syria. And one of them basically said to me, he's like, look, if you're going to study the religion, you know, I have a place, you know, you can live there. My sister's family lives just around the corner. They'll help you. So I figured, Hey, I, I guess I'm going to Syria. And so I would go, I would, you know, stage up there first. And my, my, I sold everything, my, uh, my car, my furniture. Um, my wife stayed at her parents place for a bit like uh and then they came up and joined me i lived there for two years uh first thing i did actually is i registered with the canadian embassy in damascus Mm. um which you'll see of course how relevant that is later on but i registered with the embassy i wasn't there for anything other than to study i was teaching english as well um you know making some money at the same time um and i became at first i i i through a deep study of the scriptures, I realized how wrong these extremist interpretations were. 
I became disillusioned because it's like I had been doing this for so many years of my life. Like, what the hell? And I realized, man, like we actually have it real good in Canada. I had a new founder. So what's happening here, if I can kind of self-psychoanalyze, is I'm regressing back to a time when I thought that my values were more stable. And I really think the Army cadet, that experience, really helped because like I knew things like, you know, February 14, 1965 is the day that the flag was proclaimed the official flag of Canada. Mm. It is 14, right? Not 15. Um, just some just civic day stuff that gave me that, that hook mm-hmm. into the society that allowed me that when I came back in 2004, I realized, wow, you know what? It's really good that we're, 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 uh, where I live. You know, the horror stories that I heard about what would happen to people over there if you criticize the government and like real horror stories of being black bagged and disappeared for seven years, right? Where are you getting your information throughout the 90s? And, you know, like dial up internet's still a thing today. But I mean, <laughs> That's like, right. How are you getting uh, enough information in to really affect you? But um, I don't know to what extent it would have been. But yeah, how, how are you obtaining all these things at that time? Good question, because uh, you said dial up internet. So I flashed back to, I think it was 92. And it was AOL chat, Yahoo chat and all <laughs> that stuff. Yeah, yeah, I was I was actually involved. Like my typing speed went from like twenty words a minute to like fifty words a minute. I think <laughs> just because of I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Like just the so there was the whole chat room dynamic that was definitely happening at the time. I mean, I can go back to when it was still bulletin board systems, and one of the first things that people would download is the Anarchist Cookbook, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, I you know I can still remember some of the articles like. You know, um, not going to say it because obviously we don't want people to make bombs in their homes, but, but, you know, some pretty bad stuff that like should not be online and, and, you know, should not be online. So, so there was some of the chat room stuff, um, you know, TV, I guess was, you know, you would, I remember watching the, uh, one of the Gulf Wars, I think the early nineties one, 91. Mm-hmm. Um, so that sort of stuff was around the CDs started to come around in the later nineties. Um, so that was. Uh, you could, you know, one of the things that, because um, I'm, you know, I'm sure we'll jump into, because I come back in 2004 and that's when I get recruited by the service. And one of the things that um, the service does is, of course, infiltrate these password protected chat forums and, and these sorts of things. So, uh, so then I started to see how, because I was participating in it, I wasn't going to terrorism. Um, I was definitely militant minded, like, you know, extremist minded. Um, but I wasn't going to do anything. I didn't think about, you know, blowing stuff up here. Um, but, uh, but I just kind of went right into, uh, what I used to do myself. Now I was monitoring these spaces. Hmm. It, during this time too. So do you have any siblings that are, have any influence on you or do anybody that's kind of looking at the same, like getting influenced by the same things? No, just uh, like I have a uh, younger sister, younger brother, like two years apart um, in that order. And really, I mean, growing up in the communities is really, uh, you know, so my where, where I lived in Toronto wasn't wasn't exactly, you know, we don't have ghettos here per se. But for anybody that knows the area, at least in like North York, like I grew up in a place called The Village, 940 Caledonia. Uh, and then I grew, and then I, I did, I spent one year, my middle school at, um, um, 
oh my God, Lawrence Heights mm. Middle School. That's in the jungle, quote unquote. That's a pretty, that was always a rough area even in, in those days. Um, so a lot of street uh, exposure, even uh, even in my high school years where a lot of my friends were like Italian, Portuguese, like we had some Vietnamese and uh, three black guys, um, one black girl. But it was pretty, it was a very diverse crowd. But even in that, like we were hanging out with like Portuguese, you know, gangsters and people like that. Um, so street kind of lifestyle, you know, exposure to other cultures, obviously, because from the Muslim perspective, you get like different ethnicities, Indians, Africans, Mm -hmm. uh, Arabs, uh, and so on. And so you hear a lot of their stories. It's, it's interesting because like, I didn't get onto the whole Middle Eastern thing until I started hanging around with, you know, um, hardcore, like Salafis, you know, and and mostly Arabs, Mm -hmm. you know, my, from an Indian background, like, we didn't even, I didn't grow up in my house with like my father talking about the Kashmir conflict because his father being the cop refused and prohibited any political discussion in the home. Mm. So even he didn't grow up with it and he, you know, didn't kind of, so I didn't grow up in that. So the information I'm taking is from all different sides. Uh, I imagine from the friends you're talking about, most of them are either, didn't talk about religion or maybe they're more on the Christian side of things. Did any, anyone have an influence on you from that side at all? Oh, that's a good question. Yes, actually, that's a very good question because I, you know, I, I kind of already had a positive experience. Like I'm again, from that generation, I remember in Kane senior public school, I read the Lord's prayer on the PA, Hmm. you know? And, and it's interesting because like, Theologically, the, the Lord's Prayer is fine Islamically. I still remember it. I After I got married, I went on this crazy honeymoon trip to, uh, uh, went to the Holy Lands and did a Holy Land tour in, in Israel, Jerusalem, um, and uh, Egypt and all that. And there's a church up there on the Mount of Olives that has the Lord's Prayer in all the, the written languages uh, assembled in mosaic tile. Um, mm. Very... Uh, but even like right from, you know, 13, I guess, 12, 13, exposure to that, you have all this Christian pageantry stuff that you were doing. It was still allowed in schools. Um, I would, of course, go as one of the wise guys. I mean, wise men, uh-huh. uh, you know, just wear the Muslim robe, take my grandma's cane and voila, I'm one of the, yeah. you know, the, the, the wise men from the East. Um, but even in my friends, I mean, I had one friend whose mother was very involved in the Anglican church. Um, but it was weird because I used to be one of those Muslims who liked to, de- to debate Christians, uh, you know, and I kind of grew up with that. It was a very confrontational, it's a very confrontational approach to other religions. Um, and it's only when I, I hope I matured that I realized that we have so much in common. We need to focus on those common things because mm-hmm. we can debate till we're dead in the face and we'll never reconcile those debates, you know, but common things and common values and, and goals, we should definitely. So at that time I was still, you know, and, and what actually hit me was while I'm trying to debate these people and be all like, you know, uh, technical and formal with it. I saw in the life of these Christian people, that they were good people, mm-hmm. right? They, they, their behavior was good, their conduct with other people, the way in which they were caring. And so that impacted me, I, you know, a lot. 
I had this one one Jewish friend, um, and he's, he's it's weird. He's like, because is he kind of is he really Jewish? Because his father was the Jewish man, and his mother was a Chinese lady. Oh. So technically, but he, yeah, I think he converted or something, and he's trying to. I think I'm more Jewish than he is. Like the guy eats pork. He's like, he, you know, he's the worst. <laughs> You know, I mean, he's a convenient but, one when it when yeah, it works. <laughs> yeah, but the positive examples of my friends' families, like the parents that I in- interacted with, and and how loving they were and how caring they were, is something that really stuck with me. So that's kind of how I would. It makes it harder, if I can be kind of blunt, to kill people when you like them, when you know them, yes. and you've had dinner with them. Yes, you know. So. That's the one thing that I always found interesting about uh, debates on religion, and I am no scholar in this stuff by any means, because uh, I find it all super confusing. <laughs> and there's just a there's a million uh, of them out there. Is yeah, like you're saying, you know, there's so much in common. So I find it kind of funny that there's so much debate about you know this one's bad or this one isn't. You know when. To me, as maybe just a completely ignorant person, when I'm listening to people argue this, it's like, isn't like 90% of what you're saying the same thing? Just one person says this person was the better one and that one was the better one. Um, And it's like you're saying too, you know, you can look at all these different religions and everybody still manages to raise a family and have good people in there. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's... Where's the extremes and and who's taking it to these extremes? Um, I guess it kind of comes up in the like a you know free speech debate too, as to whether uh, you know what what are you going to kind of put a cap on and what are you going to allow people to do or practice or say or or preach out there? But yeah, it's like you know uh, I have friends of all different backgrounds, uh, races, faiths, and everybody seems to make it work somehow. So I don't think anybody really has the right answer, but I don't think everybody's, you know, to do the wrong thing necessarily. There's a meme, I guess, uh, you know, of course I got to go to the meme. That's the culture. We're in. But I, I like, I, it's like an atheist, a Jew, a Muslim, a Christian, a Hindu, a Buddhist, walk into a cafe, order coffee, have good conversation because that's what happens when you're not an a-hole. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's right. And, the whole religion debate, I mean, it's, it, it, really, it, it really doesn't. I mean, let me do it this way. At the core, there's, there either is a God or there's no God, all right? I mean, we'd say there can't be gods because they'd always be fighting with each other all the time. The three main religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, all believe in one God, okay? Um, that's the creator, right? Other people, they call it, you know, different names. Mm-hmm. Indigenous cultures, you know, the, the creator. Right, the maker. Uh, the, there's a core concept that everybody knows. It's the it's the creation argument uh, that this all this stuff didn't just pop out of nowhere. It's not random. The amount of infinite exactness that is required for the universe to sustain itself, it is it, it just you cannot. You might as well just say the letters of the alphabet can randomly fall into Shakespeare. Yeah. Okay. So the creator argument, I think, is sustained. I think it's a strong argument. Then people get lost in the details, right? One guy claims this, another guy saw it from their perspective and said this. And yes, you were going to see all kinds of, you know, common values and common teachings that everyone has. 
you're going to differ on some things, right? And that's where you need to kind of start to make a decision on which one, you know, resonates for you. But like you said, at the end of the day, they, people end up having families. They, they have the same fears that we do, anxieties that we do. And it's like, the world is mostly good. I know that's hard sometimes when we, when we consume only the bad, <laughs> yeah. right? Especially like in, in what I've been doing, like, you know, I've just been consuming the most evil of the world. And yeah, I look for the good in the world. You have to do that. Otherwise, you know, if you're not living life and loving life, then you're losing. Well, and I'll say, uh, I keep track of some of the stuff you put up on LinkedIn uh-huh. and you give it to both sides equally. Yep. <laughs> so, yep. yeah, it's like, I, and that's the, the kind of uh, perspective that I appreciate when people, you know, you're not just steadfast in, I just believe this and these are the greatest. It's like, no, everybody screws up and everybody's screaming and shouting when they shouldn't be. So um, I like some of that work. Uh, one thing before we get kind of back on to your career, um, since we're kind of in the whole religion uh, talk here, are you currently, like, do you practice anything? Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still Muslim. I'm Sufi Muslim. Sufi is like, uh, the Sufi are like the Jedi of the Muslim world. And the Wahhabis <laughs> are like the Sith. Okay, <laughs> best analogy to use. So yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm from the Sunni sect, the majority Sunni sect. The Sunni sect has four schools of law. It's just basically where do you hold your hands in prayer, you mm-hmm. know, da, da, da. Uh, so I come from the Hanafi school. And then Sufi orders or Sufism is just basically a specialization that just focuses on like, you know, inner self and, and mystical practices. So I do that. I think my rosary is here. It should be here. Oh, here somewhere, I promise. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I do, I do practice. Do you, do you kind of, um, and I don't know if this will be within your realm, just comment on, tell me if it's not, but, uh, I watch some programs that are, I say, more the conservative type, but they always talk about um, Islam and and say it's a violent religion, mm-hmm. and then there needs to be some sort of reform. And I guess Christianity has gone through a reformation. Right, right, right. What would you kind of say to that? Yep, yep. So I've I've heard this question a lot. Um, okay. So let's let's do it this way. Now you know me. I'm going to be brutally honest. Um, mm-hmm. I think you know there's a there's a wonderful Islamic scholar. I mean, he's died. He was like a recent guy by the name of Ghazali, because there's an, a classical medieval theologian called Ghazali who was involved in the whole philosophy, Islamic philosophy, and all that. Um, I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about a more recent one. And he says half of all the disbelief of Islam in the world is due to the bad actions of Muslims. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's how he frames it. So now Islam. So what is Islam, right? And um, so when people say, you know, Islam is peace. Well, literally, no. Islam literally means submitting your will to the will of God. That's what it means. Islam, silm, salam, when we say salam alaikum, peace be on you. Mm -hmm. So Islam, it's taken from that root, right? So that's why people might say Islam means peace. But it means submission to the will of God. Um, the um, practices of Islam, you know, are simple. Believe in God, pray, fast, give charity, and go on a pilgrimage if you can. Okay? That's, that's Islam. Um, so 
what we see now in the world, okay, is, and, and I wanted to, because I do a lot of this counter-extremism, counter-terrorism training in the U.S. where I'm cognizant that a lot of people, the only thing they've learned about Islam, I learned on 9-11, quote-unquote. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, so it's a very easy way to explain this. You know, extremists in the name of Islam, okay, have been, there's a term for them called the Khawarij. The Khawarij were an ancient sect who emerged early in the Islamic period and effectively assassinated the fourth caliph, Ali. Okay? Um, that's, you know, where also the Sunni and the Shia schism happens. Okay. You know, there were four caliphs, the three, you know, the third, the third one got killed also by these extremists who basically, whether you could call them anti-government because the caliph was the government, but they killed him. And then in that chaos, Ali was supposed to be the leader, but some people said, well, hold on a second, blah, blah, blah. So the Khawarij ended up killing him as well. The Prophet, peace be upon him, referred to the Khawarij. They would be, they would recite the Quran with, they would recite the Quran, but it would not go beyond their throat. Mm. Okay, so they were hyper-religious. Their, their fasting and their acts of worship were beyond what others could do. So they were hyper-worshippers, zealots. And mm. the prophet condemned them and warned us against them. You know, they will come in the costume of Islam. Many of them, even in the classical period, used to memorize Quran. They were, see what I'm trying to do here is I'm going to link it to modern day ISIS, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So what we see as ISIS today are what Islam calls khawarij. And the Khawarij are mentioned in the Islamic sources as evil people who disobey God and disobey the Prophet. And wherever you find them, you kill them. Mm. That's how bad they are. Prophet's orders. Right. Yeah. So, um, so what we see today are these groups who have manifested. And when did they manifest? They manifested after this so-called Wahhabism, Salafism that came out in, in the Arabian Peninsula in the 1800s. These Salafis who have come out are not from the, the traditional Islamic experience. They don't adhere to one of the four schools of law, which is the vast majority of the Muslim world. And this is what the Muslim world has done for centuries. Sufism, which was a normal thing within Islam, suddenly, according to these zealots, it's apostasy. Mm. It's blasphemy. You have to kill them. You have to blow up their sites. You know, you have to kidnap their women. You have to murder their people. So, so what we are seeing today is, and unfortunately, this is what people, because they come in the costume of Islam, that people think, well, this is Islam. Mm. ISIS comes and they're literally quoting the Quran. So people are saying, well, look, that's, that's Islam. But what you're, you've missed is that, well, Islam actually warns you about these people who will quote the Quran and you will know them by their fruits, right? If I can borrow the Christian phrase, mm. right? They murder, they kill, they destroy, they, you know, they offer nothing. Islam, I mean, everybody, anyone who has studied anything about history and science and this and that, the great contributions that Islam made, you know, to science and to civilization, a lot of the European enlightenment was precipitated because of that. Yeah. Because the, the Muslim, you know, the, the, the golden age, quote unquote, that's the dark ages for, for Europe, right? 
And it's only with, you know, and yes, of course, Muslim expansion. I mean, it was, it was, it's an empire. You know, it was a, a, um, um, a strong empire. I mean, just like the Romans, you know, they didn't spread by rainbows and lollipops, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they took over places, absolutely, right? Some other places they didn't, like Islam in Southeast Asia, for example, there were no militaries sent to Asia, but businessmen were sent there. And because of their good, honest conduct, you know, Islam spread there, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in India, even Islam spread by, you know, initially by the Sufis, but later on, when you get the Mughal kings, like they were brutal. They they killed Hindus, they killed Sikhs. I mean, some were good, some were horrible, right? So you you get good and bad even throughout the history. And this is something that I even look in my you know Muslim perspective. And people say, oh, the West is in wars in the Middle East and blah blah blah. It's like, hold on a second. You know, Muslims, we did the same thing. We projected force. We showed up with navies and militaries. We laid siege. We did all that stuff. You know, I mean, I I say to military officers in the U.S. even, you want to learn about the history of of, of conflict and war in the Middle East, read the Bible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, so so if we accept the fact that, you know, our, you know, everyone's poop stinks, okay? (laughs) I don't care what, who, what background you come from, what religion, nationality, everyone wants to, you know, create this glorified mythological past where we all lived happily ever after. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you know, it doesn't exist. So when we take that realist, borderline cynical view on politics and religion and human civilization, I think you're, uh, you can manage life more easily because yeah. you realize that this is all the, this is all part and parcel of, of our civilization. Well, and you know, most people, I think when they get into the uh, screaming and shouting of things, they don't really know what they're talking about. And they're oversimplifying a lot of things. Like you're saying, there's a whole history on both sides. There's a lot at play. Even now, like politics is, uh, it's insane. A poison. It is a poison. <laughs> so flee from it as much as you can. Yeah. And I mean that, I mean that because like for us, people like us who we like to, you know, it is about knowing if I can put a capital K on that. Like, this is like also like what Gnostics is about. Gnosticism is about like, you know, having knowing truth and, and attaining truth. And, and that is really through critical thinking and looking at things from a very factual basis, not so clinical. We cannot completely separate emotion. You know, we're human beings, mm-hmm. part of, you know, part of us, but the, 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 the the bad thing about politics is what it does is it frames information, truth, not around facts per se, but around political platforms. Yes. And that's, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just like religion in one sense. It does become a tribalism in one sense, right? Yeah, you got the red versus blue, left versus right. It's That's right. It's it's very dangerous because like it's like your tribal chief and my tribal chief, your watering hole and my camel's watering hole. Mm-hmm. It's like no, like forget the camels, like let us drink. Yeah. You know? So avoid politics as a poison. <laughs> <laughs> Good points. Um so maybe we'll get back to uh talking a bit about your career. So we left off kind of around 2004. Yep. Returning from Syria. You t- we're talking a little bit about, yeah, and being recruited. Um, so can you talk a bit about that time and then just how 
you ended up getting recruited, what that kind of looked like? Yeah. Um, the first week that I'm back from Syria or shortly after I had returned back, I'm reading the paper when we used to do that sort of stuff. Uh-huh. Front page of the paper, Momin Kuwaja has been arrested on terrorism charges. He's the first Canadian um, arrested under the relatively newly minted Anti-Terrorism Act of 2001. Momin Kawaja was arrested in connection with the 2004 London fertilizer bomb plot. Mm. Momin Kawaja sat directly to my left in the Quran school I went to as a kid that I was describing from my childhood. Wow. I used to play with him, Hot Wheels cars, you know, WWF figures, because I'm an 80s kid. And uh, his life had gone in a whole other direction, and my life was going in its direction. And I saw in the paper that he had been picked up. And so I actually saw a reference in the article to the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, not realizing at the time that, that you know, the differences in mandates between the service and the RCMP. Um, it was in court now, so it was a criminal prosecution. But I saw this reference, and... I opened up the phone book. Remember those things? People, was, you know, names and addresses and numbers were put in there. You're really dating yourself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I saw a reference to the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, Toronto Region, in the back. Phone. I picked up the phone and I called them. Now, let me pause here for a moment because in one of the trial, one of the uh, court uh, hearings that took place, when I was recounting this, the judge actually inter- intervened and said, well, hold on a second. Who does that? Mm. Right? And I'll tell you who. It's this kid who came from this house party, ends up in Pakistan, enamored by this and that, goes to Syria, has a whole new outlook on everything. And that's who calls Jesus. And so I called them up and they basically said to me, and I always make the joke and it's all in fun. Um, I met with them in one of their ubiquitous offices, also known as Tim Hortons. Okay. Um, and uh, government looking guy came by, we talked, I told him my life story and he just put to me, look, you know, I like the way you think. Um, we want you to help us. We want you to, to tell us who you think is the good guy and the bad guy. Right. And don't lie to us. Don't exaggerate. Don't, you know, you know, um, bring in people who you have a personal vendetta against, you know, let us know if there's a personal connection here, blah, blah, blah. And it was so by the book and so fair that I was like, yeah, absolutely. You know, where do I sign up? I'm ready. And so for two years, what I'll say is I was uh, under development, quote unquote, that's the term they use. And, but basically I was, you know, the general technical legal way of saying it is I was supporting their mandate to protect the security of, of Canada. Um, but of course, um, that's done in only two ways. Well, mostly two ways, human intelligence, signals intelligence. I was a human source. Mm. Uh, I am the person that, you know, generates that intelligence, which is then classified as human intelligence and then associated different classifications, depending on who's seeing it and who it's being shared with and so on. But I'm, I'm right at the, right at the, on the cement, rubber meets the road. Yeah. Um, where should I tell this story? Um, I'll tell a story. 
Uh, I won't, I'll strip of its, of its indicators, of course, but, um, and of course she's just, will never confirm or deny anyway. So good luck trying to find out from them. But it, you know, it's funny because for me, it was really not, you know, uh, you know, glamorous or anything. It was just like work. Like I'm just doing this is what we're doing. Okay. Very serious, very, I didn't even think of it like that, but there were, you know, some instances where it was I'll I'll dispense with the story, but let's just say there were, it was a lot like the movies at times. Mm. Um, and so I loved doing it. I enjoyed it immensely. I don't regret a day of it. I only wish in one sense I hadn't gone because, you know, with the service, um, the, what the, when I was, when I finally was sent to the Toronto group at the end of 2005, it then traversed over to the RCMP as an RCMP investigation. And that basically presupposed that my identity was going to get exposed. And mm-hmm. so I couldn't, of course, do this work again. But I had to make a decision even at that time. So two years, I was doing all these infiltration operations in password-protected chat forums, you know, going to the homes of the target, having a family dinner with them and, you know, mapping out, you know, the house, you know. Yeah. Um, that was the story. Basically I went to the bathroom and I had mapped out the house and came right back into the bathroom quickly and ran the, you know, flushed the toilet, ran the thing and came out and there he was, you know, and, uh, he could have caught me at any point, but so just cool stuff like that. And then one day they just told me, look, these guys, this is what they're up to find out, you know, find out what they're doing. And I was the, the level of source that, um, I'm not told anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's their names. Here are their photos. You tell us. And so they had tried to insert people. Um, but, and I love how they work because in 2008, when the jury trial or judge trial was taking place, I received a disclosure only to learn that nine days before I was sent in on November 25th, 2005, that CSIS already knew that these guys were planning a camp mm-hmm. and they were inviting people to the camp. So I like how they sent me in clean, clean. And guess what? I got recruited by them and invited to go and participate with them in this training camp and, and, you know, conduct these attacks and so on and so forth. So, so that's what made it the police investigation. It traversed over to the RCMP's inset unit that ran for six months, more information collected, uh, the, the signal stuff. So this is on the police side, intercepts audio and video, um, both from me and from, the police themselves, um, producing then source debriefing reports, which are then entered as evidence in the courtroom. So, uh, so the arrest happened in 2006, you know, spent four years in court, youth preliminary hearing, adult preliminary hearing, youth trial by judge only, mm-hmm. abusive process motion, and then trial by jury of three remaining accused. Jeez. Uh, so yeah, court processes. Easy stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> They're sure long. So during this whole time, do you ever find that as you're going through and you're meeting with these people or chatting with them online, uh, is there anything that you found was either, we'll say like tempting or might've hooked you back into thinking the way you did back when you were overseas? Yeah. Um, so, so de-radicalization, all right, mm-hmm. is a full cognitive shift away from one's previous views. The only way you can really prove that is there will never be a point of relapse or recidivism. There cannot be. Otherwise, 
what was claimed to be de-radicalization at that time was not de-radicalization. You could have people who are disengaged, so they're, they're still playing with the ideas, okay? So they, they do run a risk of going this way and that way. Like me, for example, uh, after I got married in 98, I think in, 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 because, you know, my, my intimacy needs were met and I was, I was going to have a family now that calmed me down a lot. And so it took a lot of the, um, you know, uh, motivation and opportunity to, to engage in that sort of stuff. And so I continued to engage in that sort of stuff mm-hmm. because there was still something missing. So you can have that, but I never went through any of that. I, after my time in Syria, I was completely cleaned up like I, of these extremist views because I, we went through like verse by verse, like letter, we broke it down into letters even. So, we, so once I had realized, you know, how I was convinced from the, from that cognitive perspective that this was the correct interpretation. So even when I was, and it was kind of weird because I could recognize that the way these guys are talking, I used to talk, I would yeah. laugh a lot when I would see their things. Cause I was like, Oh my God, like how stupid it sounds now. But um, that's exactly how I would talk. Do you think uh, a lot of the stuff when it comes to uh, religious radicalization is it the same as if we talk like political or even if you just got a specific goal like you're you're an environmentalist that's on the extreme do they all just tend to have the same underlying uh, way of doing things the way they believe in things or do you find like one one of those might be more extreme than the other or harder to break from ah okay good question Good question. Um, I usually pride myself in saying I've heard all the questions, but this question I have not heard. Um, okay. Um, good for you. Uh, yeah, I think so. You can break it down. You can break all extremism. You can break it down into a, a common thing, right? Um, it's just really the use of violence because you can. Mm. That's that's what it comes down to. Simple as that. We normally we we constrain ourselves. We restrain ourselves you know, from being violent. That's what civilization and being civilized is about. Um, but I think any kind of religious extremism is going to be more extreme than non-religion. And why that is. Because you're dealing with not just worldly things, you're dealing with other worldly things. So if you have a grievance that's worldly-based, you seek its redress just in the world. Mm-hmm. You don't think beyond the world, right? Yeah. With religion, you are you are only thinking beyond the world, and so what? It's another. It's, it's a very extreme, right? It, what it does is it totally eliminates any kind of accountability or anything in the world. So you don't even if you have grievances, you'll never redress them because the world is just so bad that you know you just so you so though that's why extremist people get caught up in this loop. This 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 uh, infinite negativity loop mm-hmm. because that's that's all they see and that's that's all they're looking for, you know. So so generally speaking, religious extremism is like that, and it manifests in different ways, right? Like um, and throughout time, like we can, you know, people uh, I know, like especially in the Christian Muslim context, we talk about the Crusades a lot, right? 
Well, okay, again, the Crusades have this, there there are two sides to it. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not pulling a Trump on Charlottesville rally here, but <laughs> find people on both sides. But I'm saying, it, I mean, you have to look at, yes, I mean, you know, Muslim armies and Muslim forces were making it difficult for Christians in the Holy Land. Absolutely, that was happening. But at the same time, the Christian rulers who came in to help the faithful, it wasn't so much that. It was also, you know, taking property and expanding reach and, Mm -hmm. you know, getting money to support their wars. And so everybody was getting their piece of the pie, right? In in that sort of thing. So, so the, in the way in which Christian powers interact with Muslim powers, I think this is uh, important. And this has been happening ever since, you know, Islam came about and clashed with the Byzantines, Byzantines and uh, you know, it's been going on forever. Okay. Um, And, and, you know, in the, in the Middle Ages is basically where the break happens, where you see this ascendancy of Europe because you've had, you know, the Ottoman Caliphate, uh, you know, powerful for so long. It's been doing whatever. The Muslims still run, you know, control Jerusalem, right? Much to the chagrin of, uh, you know, so today, you know, you have, um, you don't really have a problem with Muslim armies, meaning from like these nation states, right? You have it from these zealot groups. Mm-hmm. Okay. Christian extremism. What does that really look like? Christian terrorism. What is that even, is that even a thing? Right. That, I mean, that's a good, and a lot of people will point to, oh, well, there's the Lord's resistance army in, you know, I think it's Uganda. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's like, that's a, it's a bad example because that's more a, an African specific thing. It's really got nothing to do with Christianity. It's just because the cultural upbringing of, of Kony there. So, what does that really look like? So you can say, you know, Christian armies, you know, there's a, it's funny. And let me make the joke here. Like the CIA, you know, the, the joke is it's, it stands for Christians in action. Oh, really? Okay. I've never heard of that. I'm going to have to look that up. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it, like, you know, I have the, some CIA friends who I'm mean, a partner, business partner, and, um, he's very Christian and, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I, you know, I'm a believer too. We, we have the same, so I support that sort of stuff. But when you hear about things like during the, the, the war in Iraq in 2003 and, you know, Donald Rumsfeld is putting Bible verses on defense memos that were being circulated in the White House, hmm. you know, do we ascribe, uh, attribute Christianity to that? You know, we look at the, you look at the stuff that you're seeing in the U.S. right now, like hyper evangelicals is what I'll call them. Um, you know, and I'm sorry to say, like, I don't, I don't consider them Christians at all. Like they're just, I don't know what they think they are. Like they're just sold on a myth, but, um, Mm -hmm. real Christians, I think if I can use that term, real Christians, Catholics, Protestants, you know, uh, denominations that are like doing works, good works. Of course you believe in Jesus. That's great. But you know, faith without works is dead. Um, and so are they Christian extremists? Like they, you know, and I'm just, I'm asking hypothetically, I don't believe personally mm-hmm. that they're extremists or like Christian terrorists. You, you don't have that. Like you got to be blowing stuff up and killing people, you know, at that level. Like that's what we want to, that's our benchmark, right? Yeah. The bodies, right? Even now with this like, uh, attention on domestic extremism and far right terrorism that it, 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 it's fair because in the U S you know, uh, white supremacists, because they're not charged with terrorism offenses, they are killing more people, actually, right? The the jihadist thing has kind of gone down, but when we say that, we say not including 9-11, right? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's fair that, I mean, the, the U.S. has had an issue with, you know, anti-government, far-right stuff for a long, long time anyway. But they're not blowing up schools and hospitals and things like that, mm. you know, like jihadists are. And so I do see, you know, the Khawarij as a particularly more, you know, evil type of extremism than others. Yeah, and you know what, that was kind of one thing I was going to ask uh, is, you know, what, can you see one as uh, more, I'll say bad than the other, where you have uh, a, a, these groups that are like operating in Africa and then then in the Middle East, like they're well-funded, they're funded by governments um, and that's how they get all these explosives and different things. But then, you know, locally, they'll say there's hate crimes and uh, we've got these groups that are, uh, uh, you know, going out and either beating people up or spreading hate. Um, but I see that, like, you don't really see the groups here that, like, have funding of any kind. And they're, like, 10 dudes who show up to protest stuff. And, and they're not really, like, calling people to the cause. Nobody listens to them. Maybe, like, the one lone wolf who it doesn't have the friends, like, the stereotypical uh, person following that. But then I think your example is actually um, one of the most unique ones I've heard where it's like, no, I totally lived a normal life and I had good friends. and um, But I still heard that calling. Like, I just, they get their hook in you somehow and then you go off to that group. And it's like, well, that's a much more powerful way of doing things. Um, and now with social media, I mean, you see all the videos they put out and uh, like they got like a full marketing team for these these groups. Mm-hmm. So it's like worldwide, or would you say one, one I don't even know if it would be religion because sometimes they conflate things and they, they're mixing things. Um, but yeah. it's just different maybe. I won't even ask if it, one's worse than the other. It's just different. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's easy answer for me because from the Islamic perspective, the Khawarij are the more evil. Mm. Um, and, and a lot of this, I mean, I, I know it's, I, it's, I get a little preachy preachy, not preachy preachy, but just references, biblical references of the apocalyptic tradition, stuff like that. Um, the Khawarij in the Islamic sources are associated with the advent of the Antichrist. Okay. Mm. Now, I don't know how many, I mean, I hope, I mean, or I actually, I know a lot of Christians don't know this. You know, Muslims and Christians disagree as to what happened at the cross. That is true. But we both agree that Jesus was raised alive to God, that he remains with God in stasis, and that he will return again at a point to be determined prior to the, I mean, after the advent of the Antichrist. That's, okay. that's what we believe as Muslims anyway. I'm pretty sure that's what the Christians believe too. Um, and you know, the Christ will come and slay the Antichrist and blah, blah, blah. And we all live happily ever after. Um, and, and so that's a big, that's a big deal. What that says, I, I think, I mean, from my perspective, and I think from this shared theological religious perspective is if a group is being associated with the Antichrist, then I'm safely going to assume that they're the worst kind of group. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I know tactics wise, I mean, if you see, my God, some of the stuff that those narco traffickers do in Mexico, it's, it's worse than ISIS. I mean, yeah. oh my God, I didn't want to describe this, but I think some of us have seen the videos and, and well aware, like they are very, very horrible. 
I mean, their guys go to church every Sunday. Yeah. They wear the rosary and they are invoking this saint and that saint. I mean, you know, six ways to Sunday, mm-hmm. you know, are they Christians? Right? No, no, they're not. Right. So, so just switching back to the, uh, I do believe the, the ISIS type are the worst. And this is one of the reasons why, I mean, associated to the antichrist is why their two main targets are Muslims and Christians. Okay. That's who ISIS kills more than anyone else. Yeah. Right? And has targeted more than anyone else. So, so that you, you can, you can look at extremism from a neutral lens and say, yeah, look, all extremism is at its root, the same thing. I mean, you know, it's, you know, obviously it's known to be on the extreme because most people know, you know, inherently that it's something wrong. You know, it's why most people don't go around murdering people, yeah. you know, every other day. Right. But murders happen. People commit murders. Right. I mean, so it's going to happen. Um, but, um, but so, you know, generally all extremism is the same. Uh, you know, violent extremism is just, you know, it's obviously because of its violence. Um, but, uh, if you're going to pick a worst, it, it's going to be ISIS for sure. I mean, they might be out of the headlines now in the West, but mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're, they're on the march in Africa and a lot of bad stuff is happening there. Yeah. You know, the Russians are staging up there as well. And there's a whole thing with, you know, the Russians using ISIS as a proxy. Maybe you never heard of that conspiracy theory, but you know, I mean, back in 2017, I think it was when it was, we were tracking the so-called ISIS cyber caliphate. Uh, look it up. It actually went back to being a, a Russian false flag okay. operation on a cyber operation. Well, I was going to say with a lot of the people I've actually been talking to on this podcast, but like offline stuff, um, they, they, they bring up a lot of good points and, and they're more in the know than I would be like, they're more on a national security level, but, uh, yeah, they, a lot of things are connected. Yes. more than the public would know. <laughs> Absolutely, that's why it's you know it's important for people who are in this kind of line of work and field is you those your lenses have to be clean at all times. You got to be like sifting through so much garbage, mm-hmm. you know, coming from the political side, this side, you know, whatever. Like everybody has an angle. Yeah, um, if. I, I, we're getting up to about an hour here, so I don't want to keep you too, too long. Um, one last question where I'll get you to maybe explain some stuff. And then the next question will be uh, promoting yourself. <laughs> so um, just in the national security realm, uh, when you look at Canada, how we do things, the laws here, um, how do you find uh, our performance <laughs> in this mm-hmm. realm when it comes to yep. terrorism? Hey, crimes, extremism, um, are we doing good? Are we doing bad? What needs to change? Easy question mm-hmm. because Canada is awesome. Okay. We are doing as best a job as, uh, uh, an advanced, sophisticated society can do a progressive, inclusive society can do. You look at the rest of the world. You know, we are, remember, we are in a, in a very, we're in a bubble in, in North America, in this Western space that we live. Everything is so advanced, so, you know, a, a ahead of everywhere else that I find that we've kind of become spoiled in one sense. Mm-hmm. We have everything. We have all the freedoms in the world. You know, I don't care. People think, like, 
I think people are just making it out to be so much worse than it is. When you see the world, and especially the worst places, and, and other places, you know, that are developed and sophisticated, whatever. It's nothing like, it's not nothing like, but Canada is far better than anywhere else. So, hey, yes, there are continuing problems. We, we have human systems. We're going to have these flaws. There's going to be very human traits that are going to derail us. Basic human traits, greed, envy, the seven cardinal sins. You could just stick yeah. to that. It's true. That yeah. is what causes problems in society. So we will, all, we will never be completely equal or whatever it is we're trying to do. It's very altruistic, very idealistic. And, and I'm just saying that it's better here than, than most anywhere else. So whether it's, you know, I, I know, especially people have been for partisan reasons, you know, they're like, oh, Canada, is, it's finished. It's like China. It's like this, like, come on, like, you know, that stuff makes me laugh because, yeah. look, I lived in Syria for two years, okay? You don't know what a police state is, okay? We're nothing close to a, a tyranny, mm -hmm. but you don't know what those words mean to be throwing them around so lightly. We can be upset. We can, not, we can dislike, you know, whoever was in power or whatever. You know, I, I did a quick thing just to kind of illustrate the point, you know, with uh, uh, threats against uh, Trudeau versus threats against Harper. Mm -hmm. okay, former prime minister. And, and, you know, yes, it was, you know, obviously, I mean, Trudeau had more, of course, but when I saw the things like both sides, they did this, they accused Harper of being a traitor and selling out the country and this and that. And I was just like, you could just switch the names out and it would be the same yes. claims. Right. So, you know what, it is not as, as bad and world is crashing down and society is Canada is it's, not what it used to be. And it's like, everyone is so sad and crying over. No, no, it's not, you know, go out, enjoy your life, get off of social media. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's the big thing too. stop living your life. Two sentences at a time or just through the headlines read. Yeah. It's horrible. Talk to people <laughs> or listen to podcasts. That'll help. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I just want to give you the last little bit here to just kind of say where people can follow your work. Um, if they need to connect with you, how do they connect with you? Well, I, I got rid of Facebook because of these angsts that I was getting while I, you know, I would find I would go on social media, certain platforms kind of gave me certain vibes mm -hmm. and the Facebook for some reason just wasn't like, I just didn't have the time to hear, you know, random Joe Schmo's opinion about, you know, this or that, especially at counterterrorism, you know, mm -hmm. everybody's got an opinion. It's just, I didn't have time for that. You know, I'm, I have kids. I'm trying to work. I'm trying to do good. I, I want to, my, I'm accountable with my time. You know, every, everything that I do has to have a purpose. Mm -hmm. I am really obsessed in my space. I generally, I don't watch TV. I don't even watch sports. I know I'm ashamed to admit it. I do. I do watch UFC here and there, but I go to, I do Muay Thai, um, you know, like four days a week. I go with my kid. Like I like spending time doing things that actually help my life. And and so Facebook I got uh, off of because it doesn't help my life, uh, made things worse. Twitter I just recently got off, largely because it was getting like that too. But this Elon Musk, I'm sorry, he's just a nut job. Um, <laughs> you know, and and it was it's it's really just the again living life with two sentences and like in that many characters, and some people who don't have a life and they're just online all the time. 
And I just, I don't have the time for that. I don't want to do that, you know? Yeah. Um, so LinkedIn is the only place that I exist now. Um, and um, that's where you can find me. Awesome. Well, uh, yeah. if you want to just hang on for just a minute, that's why I say buy offline, but I want to thank you on here. Uh, say thanks for coming in, educating us um, and uh, speaking some truth. Right on. Careful. Careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you.